You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, this is episode 333. Do you know what that means? Uh, I have a feeling you're about to tell me. It means that we are halfway to hell. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> Listeners, you are hearing a revelation on the air for the first time. Stay tuned for future episodes as we come to terms with, with this this horrifying truth. We might start up a, a subreddit about it, maybe write some creepypasta about it. I can get behind that. I, I feel like this would fit in quite well in like a Reddit no sleep thread or maybe some creepy YouTube videos potentially. Scary photoshops are definitely forthcoming. Listeners, we are going to be talking about a movie that is about that very subject, specifically creepypasta, internet culture, and all of the disturbing things that can grow out of that. We're all going to the World's Fair in the first segment. But hopefully not actually going to the World's Fair, because I don't think I want to take that challenge. No, we're just going to be talking about a horror movie instead. Okay, cool. <laughs> the challenge that I am willing to take on is the one where we kick off our Sunday shoes. And all we right. dance a little bit. <laughs> Listeners, this week, uh, for the watch list segment, we are also going to be covering Herbert Ross's 1984 movie, Footloose. I'm going to be working out all of my complicated feelings through dance in an abandoned factory. So can't wait to see it. <laughs> all right. That's coming up on episode 333. Oh my. Of seeing and believing. You're listening to episode 333 of seeing and believing and uh, 333, you know, nice round number. Mm -hmm. If only the things elsewhere in the recording studio where we're going as smoothly yeah uh, off off mic we've had a few technology issues the computers we have figured out but everything else mostly air conditioning is not so great yeah listeners out there i don't know what it's like in in your neck of the woods here in chicago it's finally not feeling like winter anymore mm -hmm. which is super nice except for in the recording booth here with sarah and me it's very very warm because there's no air circulation uh and whatsoever and we yeah our, the ac unit is turned off the ceiling fan is turned off so you know there's uh not a whole lot of air here so we're going to try to keep it cool but you know we are going to be keeping things going at least in the technology is going to kill us all vain uh <laughs> with our first review here in a minute footloose will have to wait for the the watch segment uh, with the healing power of dance. Yeah. Uh, but here we're going to be uh, talking a little bit more about the killing power of the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're all going to the World's Fair is a little indie horror film that's been out for a little while, uh, a little bit hard to find during its theatrical run, but it is now on streaming, which is where we were able to catch it. And we're looking forward to talking about it here on this week's episode. Here's the film's official synopsis. Late on a cold night somewhere in the United States, a teenager named Casey, played by Anna Cobb in her feature debut, sits alone in her attic bedroom, scrolling the internet under the glow-in-the-dark stars and black light posters that blanket the ceiling. She has finally decided to take the World's Fair Challenge, an online role-playing horror game, and embrace the uncertainty it promises. After the initiation, she documents the changes that may or may not be happening to her, adding her experiences to the shuffle of online clips available for the world to see. As she begins to lose herself between dream and reality, a mysterious figure reaches out, claiming to see something special in her uploads. So, I mean, already there's a little bit of uh, parallelism between that premise and our own uh 
experiences here in our attic like <laughs> recording studio. So, you know, that's going to maybe inform the review to come. But I'm really curious to start the discussion uh, more from the technology angle and specifically the internet culture angle, because mm-hmm. this is a film that obviously premises itself on the uncanniness and dread that can sometimes arise from a community that takes place solely over the internet through a computer screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious to know this being a, a premise that obviously draws a lot from internet culture, specifically like creepy the creepy pasta subculture that you can find on mm-hmm. Reddit and elsewhere, message boards. I'm curious to know what you think of the ends to which writer, director, editor Jane Schoenbrunn puts that subculture here. And do you think that it all holds together as a picture of our present cultural moment? It's kind of a tall order, honestly, to like sum up our present cultural moment through like a very specific internet niche. But honestly, I I think that she kind of pulls it off. Like it really, this movie really worked for me. Um, I think that it is very smart and perceptive about the way that a lot of people tend to use the internet. I won't say about the way that teens use the internet because I am not a teen and I don't fully understand how teens use the internet. <laughs> but um, I think that she's very smart about the way that she presents teens presenting themselves on the internet specifically. Like this movie opens with a kind of a bravura shot that doesn't really feel very showy at first until you realize what's going on. Um, so Casey, the main character, played by Anna Cobb, um, spends the first, I don't know, five minutes or so of the movie, maybe a little bit longer, looking directly into the barrel of the camera, which is also her computer camera as she's addressing um, the rest of the internet as she's about to take on the World's Fair challenge. But she isn't just talking to the camera. She's also adjusting lighting, and she's also thinking through how she's going to deliver the way that she's going to talk in her video. And then she's also just scrolling on the internet. And Anna Cobb is able to pull off being somebody who is actively like scrolling on the internet and being a person on the internet at the same time without making it look like she's acting doing that. And I think that's a really tricky tightrope to balance. So um, in terms of like verisimilitude, I think this movie works really, really well. In terms of summing up or saying something substantial about like the way the world is through the lens of creepypasta, I don't fully know. But I don't know that it needed to cohere for me entirely because I don't think that you can get anything to fully cohere on the internet. So I'm Mm. curious to know what you think about that. I like that. I like that angle that uh, whether whatever you think of the way this film concludes, and we're we're not going to give any spoilers, obviously, but Mm -hmm. we are going to talk a little bit generally about how it concludes, you know, regardless of how you feel about that conclusion, I think the somewhat inconclusive feeling of that conclusion very much tracks with the way it often feels to be moving through the waters of the internet age Mm -hmm. and the various ways that um, people present themselves on there, the, the various ways that subcultures kind of spin up almost out of nowhere and develop their own kind of internal logic. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's kind of what I really liked the most about this film. I agree with you that I think it's, it's very strong and it captures something that that feels very much of the moment, not just about internet culture, but also about uh, COVID about the, the isolation Mm -hmm. 
of you know isolating at home and basically communicating with other people solely through through screens and even the ways that getting used to distancing yourself from others kind of bleeds over into your IRL relationships as well. The it's telling that we never actually see Casey on screen with any other human beings. She lives in a uh, a home with at least one parent, but we never see him. Uh, he we we hear his voice only once, and it's uh, very threatening. You know, go to bed kind of voice. Like yeah. the the relationship that Casey has with her father is obviously fraught. Um, but we never see him on camera and we never see them specifically interact except during that one brief moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also kind of captures how as you become more acclimated to spending your leisure time interacting with other people and various subcultures online, that kind of remove has a way of insinuating itself into your, your relationships with people that you new first in the flesh. Hmm. And I, I think that, that that is really perceptive on the part of Jane Schoenbrunn. And I think that the ends to which she employs it to create kind of this atmosphere of of dread. I don't know if it if it feels right to call it a horror movie, but it's definitely a movie full of dread. And I think it she nails that through just capturing that kind of feeling of being alive in the digital slash COVID age. Yeah, it's funny that you pick up on like a, a COVID thread because I didn't think about COVID at all necessarily. I think where I was coming from watching this was the internet is supposed to be a thing that connects people and it's doing the exact opposite of that even while it is in the process of like quote unquote connecting us. You can talk to anybody that you want however you want through whatever means you want, but that connection is something that's been mediated by this system. Uh, and it's something that doesn't allow you to make that personal like face to face, I'm having a conversation with you connection. And that doesn't necessarily mean that relationships that you make over the internet are, um, I don't know, can't be fulfilling or anything. But when it's all happening in kind of a superficial like glancing way, the way that it happens when you're scrolling through a feed and you see somebody say something and then you make a note to interact with that later. Like all of that gives the illusion of being real time communication, but it's not. It's something that's happening kind of asynchron asynchronously. It's something that's happening asynchronously. And when you're communicating asynchronously, like you you're reacting to something, but you can't necessarily interact with somebody at the same time. And so I think that there's kind of this disconnect between the illusion of I'm talking to you versus I'm talking to you on the internet and you might not necessarily see this until later on down the line and something else could happen to us at the same time. And I think there's, there's a definitely a level of dread there, but I think there's also kind of this seed of sadness because that connection is fleeting and it's something that you can't really necessarily fully grasp unless you're aware of those limitations where that connection is taking place. Yeah. The, so one of the things I, I, I really like about this picture is how Schoenbrunn takes the time to give us glimpses, not just of how Casey is playing this, this horror RPG online, but also the way that other people are, mm. are playing. Like the, I think that's kind of something that is difficult to to really 
the the verisimilitude, I guess, is hard to capture of uh, on film mm-hmm. for various reasons. Uh, just the the feeling of you know being part of a subreddit where there are certain social rules and certain uh, shorthand that 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 is used, and how that forges a sense of of community, even when the basis of that community is not really. There, there's no real explicit interpersonal connections there. Mm-hmm. So over the course of the film, we we kind of Schoenberg kind of takes us down a YouTube rabbit hole that she's created specifically for the film, which consists of a lot of dif- disparate people all kind of making their own little creepy pasta videos about their experiences playing this horror game and the various avenues they take it. So we see, you know, one guy who just basically records himself sitting in his bathroom, kind of mm-hmm. talking about. Uh, going to Chuck E. Cheese's, yeah. um, which is a very low-key, creepy sequence scene, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, kind of a, a much more polished sort of Marble Hornets kind of Slenderman web series where, you know, we actually see special effects being employed by the people who created that video. Mm-hmm. And then there's just sort of a 10-second clip of somebody wearing obviously fake demon wings and just yes. sort of <laughs> posing for the camera. And I think that there... It's a little funny and it's a little bit creepy and it's definitely just – it's tonally perfect mm-hmm. for capturing just weird internet subcultures in the way they evolve and, and develop their own worlds. And I think the perfection of that tone is that the tone does swing kind of wildly. Like you never know what you're going to see next. Occasionally, like throughout the movie, you'll get a kind of a clocking or cycling symbol that says like there's another video that's sort of loading. And it almost feels as though the glimpses that we see of Casey's life, even the ones that aren't necessarily actually being uploaded to the internet, kind of feel like they're getting a little bit subsumed by these videos. Occasionally, there will be like clocking and you'll see a video of someone wearing fake demon wings and then occasionally you'll see clocking and it's just Casey going about her normal life. And I was struck by the way that this movie portrays Casey as someone who is both searching for that connection and also trying to make that connection and then being very consciously aware of how she appears on camera and in camera and how she frames herself both to her audience on the videos that she's uploading and then also by extension to us as the audience. I felt very much like a member of the in-universe audience as well, just clicking through and seeing, well, what is she going to do next? What horrible thing are we going to see her do as part of this RPG? Um, and I found myself kind of caught up in, I don't know, that sub-community sub on the internet as well, like sort of that subculture and thinking like, well, what would I do if I were if I were playing this game as well? Which I think is, is a pretty remarkable trick for, especially for a first feature, but also for something that is just about a teen on the internet. There, there's a, <laughs> I, I hate the phrase hashtag relatable, but it is, <laughs> but it feels appropriate somehow for this film. And I think that relatability, it, it also made me think of uh, Bo Burnham's eighth grade, mm. which also is very perceptive about what it must be like to be a young person uh, online and not just having the, uh, you know, the, the inner the internet communities the the subcultures the social media not only how that's about you know presenting yourself to other people but also how it's a way to sort of figure out yourself like who am mm. i 
um, what's important to me because you put what's important online. So I have to find what's important to me so that I can put it online. Mm -hmm. And over this, the course of this film, Casey is basically, she's trying to create a voice for herself in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really telling that one of the first videos she makes, she, she's just sort of extemporizing about uh, her love for horror movies. And she mentions paranormal activity a couple of times. And then later on when she's, making the videos, quote unquote, documenting what's happening to her because of this this horror RPGs that she's playing, she very specifically, whether consciously or un- unconsciously, is echoing mm-hmm. creepy moments from the paranormal activity movies. Like the the scene where she kind of crawls up to her camera and makes uh you know like speaks directly into it uh creepily or when she does a sleep log and just records herself sleeping all night, mm-hmm. which Again, these moments are creepy in themselves, but there's also a deep sense of pathos behind it. The Mm -hmm. the fact that she's coming up with these creepy images and and having herself embody them, partly because that's kind of the language that she already knows. And Mm -hmm. she's trying, trying them on like clothes in the same way that somebody who gets into the goth subculture might sort of experiment with painting their nails black or wearing black eyeshadow for a while just to sort of see what it's like and see if that feels good to be part of themselves rather than just part of their interests. I kind of want to talk a little bit about that shot that you mentioned of Casey recording herself sleeping too, Mm -hmm. because it's almost like um, it's a shot that I think in any other setting, in any other movie, would be pulled off with a mirror instead of with a computer. Mm-hmm. So the way that it's framed is um, we, the audience, are watching her set up her laptop on her rotating chair so that it will face her bed. And then we can see through the um, computer's camera her bed kind of over our shoulder, essentially. Like the blocking is really good. But it's also very focused on how Casey is trying to present herself, like she's flipping lights on and off. She's really focused on how to present herself through this camera. And also she's trying to like mediate her sense of self through that camera as well. Um, and it's all things that she's learned through looking through that exact same screen at the same time. So um, this is probably going to sound super pretentious, but it kind of made me think of the Lacan mirror stage. I don't know how familiar you are with this or not. I'm not. Please continue. Okay. So um, philosopher from mid-century, Lacan had this idea about the mirror stage being uh, the point in a child's development where they can recognize themselves in the mirror. And his idea is that the moment you can recognize yourself in the mirror, you recognize that's me. And also it's not me. It's a perfect version of me. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to reach that point and become one with your mirror self again. That's a very gross oversimplification. It's also been a little while since I've read any Lacan, but I kind of was thinking about that in terms of that particular shot too, because she's kind of trying to fit herself into that image that's on that screen. And she's also recreating that image of herself on that screen very, very purposefully. So it's, you know, it's interesting also, I, that I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me that, that angle, but there's, I think what makes this such an engaging film to watch isn't so much the, the creepy elements or the, the critique slash portrait of, you know, life in 
the current digital age, but also just you, you, there, there's something still childlike about Casey. She still yeah. is a young, she still is a girl. She's not, um, fully grown. And I, 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 I you, you, as the audience, you want to sort of comfort her somehow. Cause she is, you know, she's never on screen with another person. She's, she feels so isolated. She doesn't seem to really be a particularly happy person. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where she can't sleep. It, it, it actually immediately follows the, uh, the scene where she's kind of trying to set up that, that camera. Mm-hmm. So she, she can't sleep in her own room. So she puts on her, her winter coat and goes outside to the cold barn mm-hmm. in the backyard where there's a, a projector screen. And she kind of, snuggles up on an old couch in there and puts on a, an asthma video yeah uh where and which is just a total strange on the internet just speaking soothingly to the camera as if uh this person is uh soothing a child who just had a nightmare mm-hmm. and it's 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 a it's a kind of a, a sad sequence and it's also a little bit again kind of uncanny because it's a little strange that this is comforting for Casey mm-hmm. that a that a completely strange person would be speaking that low tone, tone of voice about nightmares and it simultaneously you know has that aural soothing quality that asthma videos have but it's also a little bit creepy because you know who wants to or I, I don't know maybe it's because I don't have the asthma gene or whatever but. I have the exact opposite of that so I actually find it incredibly stressful like that kind of sound and that kind of whispering does not work for me so it heightens the creepiness for me but that's purely because I just I can't stand asthma. I mean I, I if I were in a dark room listening to uh, a strange voice go shh, shh that would not be relaxing to me at all and yet for Casey it is mm-hmm. because that's sort of She's obviously like her father is not that sort of reassuring presence for her mm-hmm. and there's nobody else. So she turns to the internet and that's where it comes from. And that's creepy and sad and also endearing. You you want you want the best for Casey. Yeah. Like she's sitting there cuddling like a stuffed animal, essentially. Um and yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I'm I'm curious to know, um, I don't know, does I, I, I want to dance around spoilers a little bit, but I'm I'm curious to know, does that ending work for you? Well, well, we have to... So I guess to answer that question, we have to back up a little bit and say that obviously Casey's not the only character in this movie. Yes. There is uh, somebody that she... Uh, had, her quote-unquote creative collaborator during this uh, RPG is a, a, an older man who we, we do see on camera. He's middle-aged probably mm-hmm. he we know him only as jlb mm-hmm. and um he watches the videos that casey produces encourages her um kind of grows there, there's a relationship that grows over the course of the film mm-hmm. and a lot of the the unsettling nature of the movie is that jlb's motives are not clear to to the audience and casey kind of comes to have some uncertainty about his motives as well. Like, is he a predator? Mm -hmm. Is he just kind of a, a man who doesn't really have, who, who takes the remove of the internet as an excuse to not really like have normal social relationships Mm -hmm. or, or recognize normal social cues. What is JLB's deal? Yeah. And I think that the ending of the film 
plays into that very intentionally. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe might be the most overtly horror movie aspect of this besides just the, you know, the creepy images is just JLB might be a threat. The audience isn't sure how big of a threat he is or even whether is he, whether he even is a threat. And yet he figures very prominently into the film's conclusion mm-hmm. in the same way that you you think about, you know, the very last thing we see in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Leatherface. Yes. I'm not saying that JLB is Leatherface. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the ambiguity uh, is it's is much more delicate that Schoenburn's going here going for here, um, but I think that that also kind of taps into the fact that on the internet it's often the case that you're never quite sure who you are to another person. Mm. Uh, you know, and when vulnerability is proffered. It can be very reassuring and comforting. It can also be very unwelcome. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, again, Schoenbrunn just nails that aspect of what it's like to be alive in, on, on the internet. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that this teenage girl who we've been hearing directly from for the vast majority of the movie, like the end of her story, at least as we see it, is kind of mediated by a grown man. Um and I do think that that works for me. And I'm kind of hesitant to say why, because, again, I don't want to spoil anything necessarily. But um, it seems to me like there is both of these characters are people who are searching for some sort of a connection. And Casey doesn't really necessarily know what that connection is going to be. But JLB does seem to know what that connection is supposed to be. He knows what he wants out of Yes. And he's not sharing it. And part of me wonders if that's just due to, I don't know, the inherent like slippage of time between post and response or video and response. Like Casey posts something and then he responds to it and then they're able to talk to each other. But for the most part, like like I'd mentioned earlier, like kind of the way that the internet works is it's not instantaneous. It's still mediated by time and distance. And so part of me wonders if... um I don't know, his character is a little bit more removed from Casey than we might necessarily like think. And and maybe he has the ability to think through their reactions like in perfect hindsight in 2020. Um, and maybe that's why he seems so much more secure about their particular connection. I don't I don't entirely know. I I, I think this is one reason why I think this is such a such a I like I want to say great film because it is it is a very you know it's it's a very kind of a shoestring indie it's not ambitious in the sense that's really trying to have a lot to say about our current cultural moment you know all in caps Mm -hmm. but it just there's something about it that Schoenbrunn very calculatedly does to make it feel like it, it feels like life today Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't have like grand pronouncements about life today. And mm-hmm. I think that's why I think ultimately, I think it's one of the better films I've seen this year mm. is that it's just that the way it resolves or doesn't resolve is, is like a pebble in the shoe. And you just, my mind keeps worrying it over again and again. Like what, what does it mean? Who is JB ultimately? What are we supposed to think about him? Um, and you know, what do we think about Casey's ultimate fate? Hmm. Um, and do our desires in those various areas, what, do that, what does that say about us? I think that, that 
it feels a lot like being on the internet where it's 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 always there's always an, another thing coming mm-hmm. down the pike. We don't know what it's going to be, but we know it's there and there's always things left hanging in the past like Facebook confrontations that are inconclusive or like or, stumbling on a forum or something and you see two people having having an exchange and it's never resolved. Yeah, it it's, and it's like 3 you're... months old and you just never know quite what happened to them mm-hmm. or you know somebody uh, just deletes their account and you just you know they they might as well be they might as well be dead mm-hmm. you 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 never know because you only knew them through that account and i think that we're all going to the world's fair kind of captures that i don't know it, it's i don't say i don't want to say it's a spiritually deadening thing cause that's not necessarily true but there's there's definitely kind of a spiritual component to the the isolation here that i think that a lot of a lot of us whether we're you know people of faith or not can empathize with in the age of covid just being cut off from people and kind of wanting that connection that casey also wants Mm -hmm. and then not being able to ultimately make it necessarily it feels true i think Mm -hmm. and that also feels bleak at the same time because Mm -hmm. the way that it's presented i don't think that there's ever really like a full resolution of can you make that connection I, I think it's admirable in, in the end that Schoenbrunn, like Robert Eggers in, in a lot of ways, she doesn't make concessions mm-hmm. to genre filmmaking or tidy resolutions. And I think that uh, ultimately makes this a her a very formidable filmmaker. And I'm looking forward to seeing what she does next. Me too. Well, listeners, that is our review of We're All Going to the World's Fair. If you've had a chance to see it, it's currently uh, streaming on demand, so... Uh, it's definitely available for you to watch through your computer screen. And this might be the rare movie where watching it on your laptop might actually be a pretty good way to see it. I'd actually. say it's the ideal way to go. It, it, in any case, we're interested to know who else has seen it out there and what you think about it. What do you think about the ending? Uh, and what do you think it has to say about uh, life in, in the digital age? We're all ears. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter to let us know those thoughts. Don't go anywhere. Uh, After the conversation segment, we're going to be talking about Footloose for a slight change of pace. (laughs) Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there on the internet. So with We're All Going to the World's Fair, parasocial relationships are sort of a theme of this week's episode, mm-hmm. but uh, we actually kind of prize those relationships here at Seeing and Believing because mm-hmm. they allow us to keep the conversation going, which is the major theme of this middle segment that we're calling The Conversation, where we just read out what we've been hearing from our listeners out there on Twitter or via email and just talking about movies. It's a, it's a good time to, to be on the internet in that sense, for sure. Yeah. like I like hearing from all of you out there in listener land. Um it's interesting to hear what's on your mind, what you're thinking, where we've gone wrong, where we've gotten it right, hopefully more often than we've gotten it wrong. Um, so yeah, it's it's an enjoyable part of being a part of this show. And one of the things we do like to do is shake the tree a little bit with our, you know, with our Twitter account. Uh, Sarah, you're kind of the the Twitter master uh, <laughs> these days. Um, and you I'll post- add that to my resume. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter master. Yes. It's, it's a good one. Um, and part of the way you help us keep the conversation about moving movies going is uh, posing little questions out there on Twitter for people to just respond to and share their thoughts. And uh, this week you you posed a 
specific one to sort of tie into the conversation about we're all going to the World's Fair. Yep. Uh, we wanted to know which movies get the internet right and then also which ones get the internet very, very wrong. Yeah, so we we heard from a few of you. Jason Moorhead had a movie that he argues kind of does both, and that movie is Hackers, <laughs> which uh, neither of us have seen, I, I think. I haven't seen Hackers, but it's been on my list. Okay, well, uh, that, that may be uh, something to, for us to, uh, you know, excavate from the... the 90s world of techno thrillers. Uh, Jason has this to say about it. He says, Hacker's depiction of the actual technology of the internet is completely absurd, but it totally captures the feeling of the era, back when the internet was still mysterious and just beginning to emerge in the public awareness and computers still seemed magical. So, I mean, that's kind of what we were talking towards the end of our discussion about we're all going to the World's Fair, that that film kind of just feels a lot like being alive today. And Jason's argument is that Hackers kind of does something of the same thing. Yeah, I think we're all going to the World's Fair adds an additional layer of maybe dark magic, potentially. But (laughs) that sure is what it feels like to be extremely online these days, which I unfortunately am. I I mean, I was online in the 90s, and I don't know that my experience of the internet matched the character, that of the characters in Hackers. But, you know, maybe I was in the minority. Maybe everyone else out there was, you know, hacking corporations and, you know, hacking the world, I guess, is something that they they do in that movie. Hack the planet, I think. I'm not entirely sure. Man, Hacker Fan Nation is going to roast me alive for that, I'm sure. So sorry about that, Hacker fans, if if you if you are out there. I know not of which I speak. <laughs> um, Abby Olchesi also responded to our tweet just with a gif, do you know anything about hackers? Which I think means that she's also part of Hackers Nation, potentially. Okay, so, so there's at least two of them out there. So. <laughs> yeah, probably a few more, one would hope, although hopefully not enough to hack us for getting any of this wrong. Uh, I don't know how hacking works either. I, we ha- we haven't watched hackers. We don't. We know nothing about hacking. <laughs> oh man, the, the gaps in our movie knowledge are growing ever more cavernous. I should probably Google it. Um, which, to be fair, is also something that came up in the conversation on Twitter as well. Kyle Matthews responded to say that searching gets the internet right because it was directed by a former Google employee. I haven't seen Searching. Have you? I saw Searching. I was I was pleasantly surprised by it. I thought it was going to be kind of gimmicky because it's, you know, this detective sort of thriller that is takes place solely on a computer screen. So we actually watch a sleuth try to find a missing person solely by, you know, check going through emails, going through Skype, having video chats. Um and it actually works pretty well. Mm. Um I don't know that it really feels a lot like you know in terms of just the overall atmosphere of being alive hmm. in the internet age but definitely captures the way that you can the the manifold uses i guess that you can put a computer to like as a tool hmm. to discover things to get some knowledge to disappear down various rabbit holes it's pretty perceptive about just how versatile of a of an instrument the internet and computers can be. Yeah, it seems to me too, like um, there's a couple of different ways that you can present the internet online. So there's that creative, like kind of boundless way of going at it, like you mentioned with searching. And then Chris Eights got back to us as well on Twitter to say that um, movies that get it wrong include movies that use a viral hit, like a video or a song as a plot point, um, because it 
paints the arts as meritocracies, and that's not how anything works. And he included uh, the poster for Hearts Beat Loud and The Rocker uh, in his follow-up there. And I am batting like 0 for, 0 for 5, I think, <laughs> at this point, because I haven't seen any of these movies either. I, I haven't seen The Rocker. Uh, I did see Hearts Beat Loud, which is, it's fine. It's kind of like a nice feel-good movie about, uh, you know, a father-daughter music-making team who have a, a viral hit, you know, it kind of um, that launches them to uh, a certain kind of stardom. But I think Chris is absolutely right that it doesn't, it, it's a nice feel-good story, but it feels kind of dated in the sense that that's the sort of story that you would tell about uh, a father-daughter songwriting duo in the radio era mm -hmm. where you get one massive single hit and you just blow up, which it does happen uh, these days as well with, you know, like Justin Bieber basically exists because of the internet. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like capturing what virality actually looks like in the wild, I, I think Chris is right on that Hearts Beat Loud is sort of like, eh, it doesn't, that's not the way the world works. <laughs> Tom Hanks did it already, and it was with that thing you do in the 90s uh -huh. about a band in the 60s. <laughs> right, sure. right, yeah. Well, listeners, uh, thanks so much for, for sharing all those thoughts. Uh, if, if there are any of you out there who haven't yet shared uh, your picks for movies that get it right or get it wrong when it comes to the internet, our mailbox is still open. We'd love to hear from you on that. And if you, you know, don't, aren't so much of the outgoing type, but you still want to support the show in some way, you can, of course, always go to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Let's you uh, maybe not give us specific feedback, but, you know, maybe shoot a few hard-earned dollars our way to keep the lights on. We also very much appreciate that as well. So if, if that describes you, uh, head on over there and check it out over on our Patreon. Hack the Patreon. Don't do that, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time for Footloose. Hang on a second. We'll get there. An Ecclesiastes assures us that there is a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to laugh and a time to weep. A time to mourn, and there is a time to dance. And there was a time for this law, but not anymore. See, this is our time to dance. It is our way of, of celebrating life. It's the way it was in the beginning. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it should be now. And now for something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> we go from, you know, uh, you know, kind of a bleak view of, you know, uh, life in the, uh, in the internet age. Sort of, we're going from the era of Radiohead to the era of Sammy Hagar. <laughs> We are, of course, going to be talking about Herbert Ross's 1984 film, Footloose. This film features a baby-faced Kevin Bacon in one of his first lead roles as Ren McCormack, a transplant from Chicago to a conservative small town defined by its wide-open spaces 
and the influence of a pastor played by the great John Lithgow, Mm -hmm. who distrusts modern music's threat to the purity and safety of the town's residents. Needless to say, these are problems that can only be resolved through some teenage rebellion and the healing power of dance. Yes. So uh, we we are going to be just jumping in with both feet here. Sarah, I'm curious to know what you love about this movie, and specifically, why did you pick it for this week's episode? Because- like I said earlier, it seems like this is a little bit more, you know, 80s power pop, whereas we were just in the world of chilly Radiohead anthems about alienation of modern life. So what's the connection there? So the connection is that both of these movies are about teenagers reshaping their reality through the power of art. In uh, one case, it's YouTube videos, and then in the other case, it's dance. But both of them, I think... I feel like it fits. I don't know if I've got you fully sold on that, though. I, I mean, uh, we'll probably get into that. I'm I'm interested to hear you expound upon that further. Um, but I think that that's an interesting angle to take, and I I'm I'm coming around on it. Okay, the, the power of art. That's definitely something that Footloose hits really hard about the importance of there being a time for everything. Uh, the Book of Ecclesiastes does make an appearance in this film, and uh, is. You know, there, there's kind of a, almost a climactic courtroom scene where Kevin Bacon trots that verse out to, to talk about it. And honestly, if you bring up Ecclesiastes at all, anytime, but especially in a movie, I will love that movie forever. <laughs> so that's not the main reason why I love Footloose. Um, I think the biggest part is that it's not subtle. And I think that that's kind of the point, and I don't think that this movie would work if it were a subtle movie. Like, this is a movie about what it feels like to be just alive and a teenager and bursting with excitement and enthusiasm and kind of getting around repressive ideals um, with that and being able to celebrate the things that are good in life, like dance, like being alive like making connections with other people. So I also appreciate this movie very much as a maybe not like fully sensitive necessarily, definitely not a realistic portrait, but a portrait all the same of the ways that overzealous adherence towards religion can warp and harm just as much as they can be for good. And I appreciate that this movie is willing to address that head on and not necessarily just say, but all religion bad. It just says, sometimes if if you're not, I don't know, thinking through these issues with nuance, like that can lead to some pretty awful consequences as well. So, I mean, there is a reason that I, I had a call out to the great John Lithgow in, in my plot synopsis, because I think a lot of the film's success, for me at least, uh, would can be chalked up to him. I think mm-hmm. that his performance, he does a great job of taking what is definitely on the page a very two-dimensional role. Yes. Um and investing it with with humanity and and sympathy. Mm-hmm. Um this is, you know, on, on the page this is a, you know, an uptight small town pastor who, you know, hates the devil's music <laughs> and fears uh, you know, all fears all the things that teens love. And wants to, in, in a memorable turn of phrase, offer the small town up to God on a he- on a platter with his daughter as the cherry on top. Mm-hmm. Um, John Lithgow takes that kind of caricature and and turns into a man who's yes, a little bit blinkered, but has his heart in the right place. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think 
the the whole movie owes him a debt of gratitude. Herbert Ross definitely owes him a, a debt of gratitude. So it sounds like you're on board with John Lithgow. Are you on board with the rest of the movie? You know, I, I'm I'm mixed on it. Okay. Um, I think the the thing that this movie has going for it is a lot of the stuff you said. It's it's very earnest. It's um, big hearted. It's got this really great. Um, Hollywood kind of simplicity to it where it just it knows what beats it needs to hit it knows what emotions it needs to evoke in order to work mm-hmm. and I think it does work on balance it does um, partly because it just knows that it wants you to root for Kevin Bacon yes and uh, and it wants you to desire the uh, the small town repression to be broken down it wants you to really be on board with the training montage where the you know kind of the uh the guy who can't dance and is really awkward and kind of emotionally pent up learns how to express himself through the power of dance Mm -hmm. like all that is just it's the specific filmmaking of it is just the bones of it are very solid uh, Herbert Ross working with Rick Waits finds some some pretty striking imagery in this. Oh the, yeah, the 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 much famed and much lampooned scene where Kevin Bacon angry dances in a, an abandoned factory. Uh, it's a very it, it's kind of a silly scene, but it looks really great yes. with the the lighting coming in through the 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 wooden slats and all of the the dead enormous metal machinery. Uh, surrounding him i think that that's it's effectively shot and i think that that's what this film has going for it is that herbert ross knows what he needs to do in order to sell this story to the audience Mm -hmm. having said that Mm. i think there are problems with it which we can probably get into oh let's Um, get into it yeah um i think the 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 big problem i have with this movie is that kevin bacon's wren is a little bit of a mary sue Mm -hmm. and i just do not buy the con the central conflict that he is supposed to be feeling and I'm curious to to hear whether that's something that that you're interested in defending, or whether you think the uh, the other virtues kind of overcome that. I have an, a slightly out of left field uh, okay uh, defense for this. I think because I think one of the other reasons why I love this movie is because it is about toppling the patriarchy, and specifically because Kevin Bacon's Wren is a very like not masculine male lead character i think he's he's kind he's gentle at one point um being the protagonist of like an 80s movie you would expect him to say something probably fairly homophobic and he actually says the opposite of that another character says something rude to him that is definitely homophobic and he says i i thought only jerks said that anymore and he makes an enemy out of the process um but it's a very good like small character beat and then it's never commented upon again um in terms of the patriarchy angle. (laughs) John Lithgow's pastor character kind of seems to think of himself as the savior of the town. Like he as the preacher is responsible for the souls in his congregation. And as a leader, he sort of is, but I think he also takes on that responsibility in a way where he feels like he must save all of them. Like he alone is responsible for their salvation. And Jesus already did that. (laughs) That's not something that he necessarily has to do. It's his job to shepherd and guide his congregation towards that truth. 
But I don't think he needs to be the one to deliver the entire town on a platter to God at the end of time. Okay, so I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that that's, that's an interesting read and I think it actually works. I think it works in spite of the movie. Ooh, okay. Um, I think the, the reason you you obviously are correct that John Lithgow's pastor is, you know, thinks that he's going to be the one to save the town. He's going to be the 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 pastor who's going to save his flock, mm-hmm. uh, ignoring the fact the obvious fact that Jesus already took care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that's a symptom of the fact that this screenplay doesn't isn't particularly interested in actual Christianity. It's more just like Lithgow exists to be a foil to Wren mm-hmm. and uh, to be kind of an obstacle. And it's saved somewhat, again, because John Lithgow is awesome. Mm-hmm. And there are some some pretty perceptive turns of phrase in the actual nuts and bolts of the writing itself. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, it's more just the fact that because on the page, the pastor is such a caricature that you find those, those things where he's not acting Christian, not because the movie is specifically critiquing his spiritual worldview, but because the movie just kind of makes him a cardboard cutout, and that's obviously not what a real Christian is. Yeah, that's kind of where it starts to fall apart a little bit for me, is that I wish that the movie was willing to interrogate that piece a little bit more. Um, And I think it starts to get there, and it doesn't quite follow through. And that's largely because John Lithgow's character's wife, Vi, played by Diane Wiest, um, kind of starts to assert herself a little bit into the politics of the town as the teens at the local high school are, tr- are trying to get their own prom like they're trying to get their own first dance obviously john lithgow's character is very opposed to this because he is opposed to dancing and rock music and um all sorts of things that will lead teens down to the path of sin and death but his wife who i think in any other movie would just be like a shy and retiring character who like fades completely into the background and is completely unmemorable. I think that she does, Diane Weiss does like a pretty remarkable job of asserting her as a character who is willing to like live into that role of being a pastor's wife and then also calling him on his crap. (laughs) Like she, and there's, speaking of of the cinematography, there's a lovely shot. um, I, I just quite like the blocking in it where they're sitting in the pews of the church and he's done something wrong and she is sitting fit, sitting facing straight forward to the front of the church hard profile all of the focus is on her and she is in the foreground and he's kind of in the background facing her from behind and a little bit out of focus like he's lost and he doesn't know what to do and she tells him like you're a really good preacher but you need work on the one-on-one because you screwed up with your daughter um and that little thread i think kind of helps redeem a little bit of the this doesn't quite get christianity necessarily because like it's starting to get to that point and for me like i feel like i can make that connection and Mm -hmm. the gap doesn't matter to me necessarily because i'm willing to jump with that movie the cast i mean again like the cast sells it um and uh that is is why on balance i'm i'm positive about this film even if i'm maybe more mixed than, than you are and i think that that's because um Whatever the screenplay's shortcomings, the directing and the the acting do a lot to to again just sell it to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think where I keep running into a wall with this isn't so much the I mean you know the portrait of of Christianity being a little bit two dimensional, sort of like if 
you watch Hollywood movies, you you just get kind of used to that. But I think for me, the 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 problem I c- keep coming back to is we, in order to really buy buy into the uh, the emotions of of Ren just you know chafing under the the per- the repression of the you know the of the patriarchy, if, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I feel like you really have to buy that he actually is being repressed somehow. And I don't really see that in this movie. He's kind of, he, from the from the word go, um, all of the girls are into him. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes a friend right away at school. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, the, the pastor doesn't like him, but he doesn't actively antagonize him like face to face. He gets a job right away. He has his own car. He gets pulled over by the cops and they take some of his stuff, though. Like, the rest of the town doesn't trust him and he's living in the house of a guy who also clearly doesn't trust him either. I would have liked more of that. Mm. I feel like there's there's enough compensation. I'm like, you know, he's he's he has some bad days, but overall, he's doing all right. Yeah. And, and I think that for the healing power of dance to truly feel like healing... I feel like he needs to have some actual wounds. Okay. And I don't know that I don't know that Kevin Bacon's Ren really has those. So what about um his counterpart Ariel? Do you feel like her wounds kind of match up or make up for that? I think I think Ariel is uh by far the more interesting of the pair. And that's partly because uh I I think the writing for her is a little better. There's there's a lot more interest in uh, complexifying her in terms of the fact that she's chafing under her own, you know, repression, mm-hmm. but hers is actually real. Yeah. <laughs> like Ren's is sort of like, oh, you know, I don't, you know, sometimes people don't like me and that makes me sad sometimes. <laughs> Whereas with Ariel, she's, you know, a woman who her father doesn't want her to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when she, uh, you know, she's she's dating a boy that she has uh, had sexual experiences with, and she gets slut shamed by of all people, Ren. Mm-hmm. Um, That's there's, fair. <laughs> there, there's a lot to. Uh, she obviously is suffering the same family loss that her whole family suffered. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a lot going on with her character where it feels like she needs the healing power of dance. <laughs> Ren feels like he kind of just needs to, you know. Give it a give it some time for for himself to you know be accepted by this community, mm-hmm. and I maybe that's kind of where it feels like the the movie's priorities priorities are a little off whack. I feel like Ariel should maybe be the protagonist more so than than Ren. Mm. I mean, I'm on board with that read for sure. Does Ren even need to be in this movie? Like, if 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 we take so go with me here. Okay. Take the, if take, make a thought experiment where Kevin Bacon is not in this movie at all. Uh, Kevin Bacon, you know, he, he's still in Chicago, whatever. Ren doesn't exist. Okay. And instead, the main character is Ariel, who the, the cops harass her. Hmm. She has, she's a free spirit and loves to dance, but the rest of the town doesn't really get her. Uh, she has trouble, uh, you know, getting a job. Uh, she worries about her future and she just wants to let go and dance and her dad won't let her what is wrong with that movie and why is Ren necessary for that story? <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay. Okay. I'm on board with this. Um, Especially, you know, if, if this movie is toppling the patriarchy. Oh, man. I hate it when you make good points like that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm trying to think through, like, I think the only problem with that would be that the inciting incident would probably have to be, like, really cheap and manufactured, because at that point, she's kind of in a state of stasis, like she is at the beginning of this movie. But then again, Ren moving to town is also a little bit manufactured, too. So I'm a little, I think you might be right. I'm a little annoyed by it, but I think you might be right. <laughs> I, I mean, to to be fair, I, I don't I don't have a problem with Kevin Bacon as such. I just feel like his conflict doesn't feel as well fleshed out as Ariel's conflict. And mm-hmm. yet he is positioned as the main character and even kind of has the traditional Hollywood moment of he kicks the, the bully's butt at the end in order to sort of assert his dominance, which works against sort of the being less traditionally masculine hero. I, I just feel like I just need a little bit more from this movie and it's not giving it to me. And it's just irritating me because I want to give myself over to it fully. Because it wants me to. It yes. is, like you say, a very earnest movie. And it's it's an earnest movie and it's a joyful movie. And maybe we need the character of Ren to kind of inject that joy into these circumstances, potentially. Because Ariel is a very... She's on the edge. And she's not doing well. And I think she thinks she's doing okay. But everything that she does, mm. including around her friends, indicates that she's not. I mean, the first... Like, the defining thing that her character does when we first meet her is she climbs in between two cars speeding down the highway and she faces down a semi truck that's coming in the opposite direction and she looks like she's having fun but she clearly has a death wish and she repeats the stunt again like 30 minutes later with a train running down the tracks and who comes in to save her from herself it's Ren (laughs) but does it need to be him probably not well I I think that that's those two things I was kind of like waiting, oh, this is kind of interesting. She she sort of a death wish and she is, you know, she's she's sexually active. Is there like some sort of commentary going on here? And mm-hmm. the movie doesn't I, I to me, I didn't really see the movie following through on that potential as much as I would have hoped. Mm-hmm. So I guess Yeah. So to to maybe to bring it home, I'm kind of curious to know. There, this isn't the first time that there's been a watch list segment where we've dis- disagreed on a movie. I mean, mm-hmm. even as recently as Face Off, mm-hmm. I was singing its praises and you just, you weren't convinced by it. I wasn't fully sold on that one either. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm, I'm wondering, what is it, what, what is your impression of Footloose now that this conversation has, has happened? I mean, because I hate, I don't want to be a killjoy, but I'm also (laughs) not going to budge an inch on the fact that I'm just not buying Ren in this movie. I don't think you've killed any of the joy. I think you've tempered a little bit of it because of that critique, but I think it has made me like the other elements of the movie that I like even more. So, okay. That feels successful to me. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll chalk that up as a success. Listeners, if you've had a chance to, uh, Join us on the on the Footloose journey. Have thoughts about that. Obviously, we're we're interested mm-hmm. in whether you're Team Sarah or Team Kevin on this. Is Kevin Bacon necessary? Are snakes necessary? <laughs> Let us know, uh, of course, on Twitter or via email. <laughs> I'm looking forward to to next week's uh, episode, um, partly because of the watchlist segment that we're uh, going to talk about here in a in a second. Uh, and share with our listeners so they can watch along with us. But we're going to be doing another patron pick next week. I'm really looking forward to this one, too. Yeah, Ron Sturry, who we uh, shared some of his feedback last week, has uh, been seeing the praises of Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers for a while. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, he, as one of our patrons, has 
the ability to have us review one movie a year. And that's his pick for this year. So we're, we're going to be doing that next week. And to fit with the theme of families and different generations, we're going to be talking about Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. So I'm looking forward to that a lot. That yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to both of those. I am really looking forward to watching more Almodovar because I think the only movie of his I've seen is his previous movie Pain and Glory, which I liked very much. But I'm I'm curious to get a little bit more like dimension on this particular director. Um, I've also only seen one other Ozu movie as well. Okay, Late Spring. Um, which I know that you like quite a lot. So I'm looking forward to expanding my horizons a little bit for both of those as well. I, I mean, truth be told, Late Spring is my absolute favorite movie from Ozu and one of my favorite movies, period. Mm. So I was a little bit disappointed that you had already seen it because I was just <laughs> I was just rearing to go to talk about it on the air, but maybe another time. Mm-hmm. I also ha- don't have a lot of experience with Alma Dovar myself, so I'm looking forward to talking about Parallel Mothers too. So that'll be a, a good talk. Mm-hmm. Well, listeners, uh, that's our show for this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larsen, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.